Conversations about the need for a more diverse and inclusive corporate Canada are not new. We've been having them for years and not much has changed. We continue to use our progressive immigration policies as a sign that we're making headway on diversity and inclusion in corporate Canada. Guess what? We're not. And recent anti-racism protests have placed the corporate world under increased scrutiny. Making charitable contributions to organizations committed to serving diverse groups, supporting events that celebrate our vibrant and diverse communities, and making pledges to increase diversity on boards are important, but they are only starting points, and we need to recognize them as just that, starting points. We cannot brush off the hard, roll-up-your-sleeves, long-term work of creating diverse workplaces where all employees can bring their full selves to work, be engaged and productive, and feel they are valued, supported, and belong. To do this, we need data, useful data, and an understanding of data analytics. Only then can we begin to develop meaningful programs and strategies to create much-needed change in corporations across Canada. Today, Miranda McKee and I talk data and artificial intelligence as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Both Miranda and I have worked in large corporations and seen firsthand the ad hoc approach to diversity inclusion, the absence of data to make decisions, or any understanding of how to use data to identify opportunities, manage risks, and hold leaders accountable. Hi, Miranda. Before we start talking about your work, I wanted to touch on our first conversation, the one in which we talked about why I started her climb. I spoke to you about a meeting I had with a C-suite executive in a large Canadian financial institution. In this meeting, she emphatically said, we just don't have enough qualified women of color. When I talked to her about the need to extend our understanding of diversity beyond gender, to include all other types of diversity. When I told you this, you knew exactly who I was talking about and shared your experience with her. While I guess I'm not surprised that another woman of color has experienced her inappropriate and hostile behavior, I am sad that she can continue to move forward without any understanding that her behavior and bias creates environments where people feel threatened, unencaged, where there's little diversity and absolutely no feeling of belonging or inclusivity. These types of work environments are counter to what we're trying to create. And I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on this. I'm sorry that had happened to you. And it's just as sad as that is, it's it's not overly surprising to me because you kind of hear these small, you know, well, not small in your case, but these microaggressions that happen on a daily basis that brings down your legitimacy, your education, the hard work that you've done, which is just, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's not even based on fact when they're saying things like this. And I think with me, um, with that person in particular, Although my conversations with her weren't necessarily related to inclusion and diversity, it was more related to, you know, data and work specifically, but it was just kind of how those interactions happen, where you're not creating a space where if I'm speaking, if I have, you know, my voice or my advice, it's being respected in that same light. You're kind of treated as someone who's just kind of like a person in the room as opposed to a person that can be trusted with, even though I come with the appropriate qualifications to be. And it's just kind of a lack of respect, right? And I think what happens when you're put in situations like that, it really makes you kind of question your capabilities, even though you are qualified and even though you should be in the room. And when you have that happen so many times uh, throughout your career and throughout your life, it really does eat away at you, right? And it starts to kind of question 
will I, you know, speak up and voice my opinion in a room? And you start to do that less and less because you're just less comfortable with it. So many times you've just kind of been brought down. And that's where, you know, I think it's kind of that piece on power and privilege when you have executives in those positions. They should be using their power to kind of create that more equitable, inclusive environment. But instead, they're using their power to almost oppress, which is, is super problematic, right? And and then I think it causes, uh, you know, people like you, people like me to, we just don't want to be in those situations. We don't want to be in those types of organizations. And then it creates that like cycle, right? Of why can't we get more women of color in leadership positions? Why can't we just even get more women of color into an organization? Well, you know, those are specific reasons when that's happening to you on a daily basis. You just don't really want to be part of that. It is unfortunate that people like this particular person continues to move on in the corporate world. And And is celebrated, right? Yeah. You know, there's no repercussions to behavior like that because of that power, that, that position of power that she's in. There's very few people that are willing to speak up and, and kind of, you know, say what's happened to them in fear of repercussions to their own career and job. And it's just very unfortunate that that is something that's so common. Do you think we're, we're still a long ways away from actually holding people like this particular person accountable for what they're doing? It's hard to say. I think I like to be optimistic and say that that's coming soon. And I think what's really going to happen is that we need to Often, I think around, especially things around IND and those type of spaces, you know, we'll do things like training, for example, for this leader, this was inappropriate to say, and this is why, right? And you're hoping that that person would be able to, you know, evaluate themselves and understand it and then change their behavior. That's obviously the best case scenario. But realistically, you know, people don't change their behaviors just overnight. So I think what organizations really need to do is start making leaders much more accountable from their actions perspective. And then if they're looking at how they can, you know, kind of tie that into their overall goals, having specific, you know, IND targets, for example, from a leadership executive level, and that's how they even just engage with employees, as opposed to just, oh, if you do an unconscious bias training, you're good, right? And no one, you know, here is going to show sexism and racism because they've done this unconscious bias training. It's just not true. It's a Band-Aid solution. It's not something that's looking at long-term. So I think, change can happen quickly if we take on the proper you know, processes and protocols to really enable the behavior to change by tying that again to their, their objectives and their business value. I think a lot of racialized communities, we grew up with this, you know, work really hard. You have to be 10 times better than the people in your, on your team and you work really hard. And so you focus on doing really hard work and not playing the game. Yeah. And in corporations, a lot of survival is is the game, right? It's, exactly. And so, either we we start to step up and and say that you know this is we're not playing this game and we're not ex- we're not accepting this behavior, and I will just go right to your manager, which is happens to be the CEO, <laughs> and let them know that I'm not okay with this. But it's going to take a real change because we've been so conditioned to work in a certain way. Yeah, I agree. Right. I find that too, like being I'm mixed and being a woman of color, right? It was exactly that. You know, you work hard. If you work hard, you'll be rewarded for that. That was kind of the mentality. You know, there was nothing, there was no discussions about like the politics of the corporate world. 
and you don't really realize that until you get in and you're like, oh, <laughs> okay, there's a lot more to uh, business than I thought there was. And yeah, I agree. I think it's very hard for a lot of you know women and, and women of color that are coming from these backgrounds that don't have that experience that haven't been you know, kind of brought up to the culture to understand how to navigate it. And often then they just kind of get taken advantage of when they join the workforce, because they are the ones that are going to be the hardest working. And, you know, they're doing double, triple the amount of work, you know, they're just, you know, not being rewarded for that in the same way. So it is really difficult. And I think organizations, I don't know, I don't know if they do recognize that. And they're hesitant to change it because it helps them. They may not necessarily recognize because there isn't a lot of diversity or po- diverse points of view. And so when they're sitting at the table, they don't have someone saying, well, women of color, these are the their experiences. This is why it's difficult for them to move up. And this is, this is what you need to change. It's interesting, though, because I find, though, when, for example, if there's like an issue or, you know, maybe new ERGs want to come up. They often have to go through approvals and to get funding and all that fun type of stuff. And in one of my companies I was working at, uh, I wanted to put together a women of color ERG. One of the things that was some of the feedback we got back was that we already have a women's ERG. Why exactly, as you said earlier, overcomplicate it, right? The women's ERG should address women of color issues. But we saw that gap and it wasn't there. It wasn't really addressing it. And I think what's interesting in that that case is now if you look, you know, fast forward a couple of years with everything that's been going on in the US and now has trickle down effects around the entire world, especially with you know Black Lives Matter, now you're starting to see more of a focus on things like that, on women of color, on black employees, on supporting diverse groups. And it's interesting because I think if organizations just kind of did more to listen and encourage that from their employees a little bit earlier, I think you would already see a lot of those organizations already exist and be flourishing. I find organizations tend to kind of stick with trends. So it's like, okay, if I'm in a financial services company, that financial services company is doing it. So I'll do it too, as opposed to what do our you know employees need to be successful And how can we have these kind of grassroots organizations through a concept like an employee resource group to come out and start bringing awareness to a specific topic and area? And that's, you know, if an organization can really help create that culture and foster that, it's so powerful. As I listen to you, I think, you know, strong leaders would see this as a a potential to really lead. Do we just not have strong leaders? Why don't we grab these opportunities, these leadership moments? I think as much as we say, for example, inclusion and diversity helps business value and kind of there's metrics around the importance of having diverse boards and all those pieces, it's still, I think, really hard for organizations to truly tie it into their objectives and their business value. So when you're kind of giving a leader an option to support an IND initiative or support, you know, a client need or client demand, they're probably going to always choose the client demand because that's what's bringing in the most money. That's what they see as the most value. But if you're able to kind of show the value of IND and tie that to objectives and tie that to the bottom line, it's going to change that kind of perspective on IND. Like I give the example when you think of a CSR rep or a customer service rep. So, you know, you call in, you have a complaint as a customer and you you talk to someone about it. Because that customer is seen as so important to the business, their problem, their complaint is taken very seriously. 
right? You're usually, they'll usually resolve it. If you, they'll help you return the product and they're there to support you through that journey because that customer is critical to the success of the business. But we don't really apply that with an employee, right? When an employee has a problem, it's difficult to get to HR. It's difficult to, you know, kind of resolve issues. They don't have that pathway to someone that can really help and support and resolve their problem because it's not seen in the same light where it's critical to the success of the business. But if you don't have a happy employee, right, they're not going to work their hardest. They're not going to, you know, maybe even support that customer in the best way. It has all of these negative trickle down effects within the organization. So it's so important to keep our employees happy from so many different aspects. And I think if organizations start to see that and tie that to value, it'll kind of change that perspective of, you know, that structure of support for employees from everything from creating an equitable, inclusive and diverse place where they can feel comfortable and do their best work. I completely agree. And I feel that there is a lot of data that shows that you know, your employees are your most valuable asset. You know, they're your biggest ambassadors for your brand. And so if you have employees that are engaged and excited, it's going to do so much for your bottom line. Yet in these large corporations, you find the levels of engagement low, or at least pockets within these large organizations where the levels of engagement are so low. And they're not picking up. And and so I often wonder, like, what is it going to take for people to understand? It, it's not enough to say our employees are important. It's to indicate in every way that they actually employees drive our business just as much as customers do, right? Exactly. That's exactly it, right? And that's the mindset change that needs to be done in a lot of organizations. And some are doing it and doing amazing jobs with that. But unfortunately, most haven't kind of shifted that thought. As employees are our biggest asset, we need employees to succeed for our business to succeed. When that's the case, with that mind shift change, I think that's when we're really going to see much more attention being paid to IND. I think organizations, at least the organizations I've been in, have been set up in a way where it's it's really about, you know, kind of your network. It's kind of on, you know, more of a personality basis, right? You usually see that outgoing person that's able to kind of talk to a lot of people as the person that's moving up consistently or quickly, because whether they're playing a game or indirectly, just kind of from a personality trait perspective, they can kind of create those relationships. That's what, you know, organizations support. It's the people that, you know, aren't going to advocate for themselves or that don't have someone within the organization at a senior leadership perspective to advocate for them. They don't know how to kind of tell their story in an engaging way and showcasing all the amazing work that they do that kind of get left behind. And I think when we talk about inclusion and diversity, I mean, you really can't talk about it without talking about equity. And when we talk about that, it's kind of how do organizations look to create a level playing field so that, you know, one type of person, one personality trait doesn't succeed over another just because of they got lucky with those kind of qualities. So I think that's what kind of is a really important piece of how do we make sure that when we're recognizing people, we're recognizing them and we're looking at them on the same basis and understanding that, you know, 
to move up and to be successful in an organization. And I think organizations always say this, they want to be innovative, right? They want to be thinking about the best new ideas. You need to look outside that traditional personality type and trait to truly get that innovation. You know, right? Like if you want to really foster you know, innovation and all that fun stuff, you need cognitive diversity. You need people that are going to think differently about something and aren't necessarily in that traditional path. So, I mean, it's, it's on their benefit to create that culture of equity where you can showcase different skill sets and recognize them for it. But I think just back to your question of, you know, they're really just set up in that kind of very traditional way. And it's hard for those people that don't fall under those, you know, traits and don't know how to navigate to truly showcase and demonstrate that they can be at that level and move up just as quickly. I think part of being a leader it should be that you create equity and you show how you're creating equity with your team and leveling the playing field for your team so that everyone has the opportunity to shine. We need to make that clear to leaders. I, I mean, I remember in one position I had, I had a manager, lovely, lovely woman, very, very bright, quieter. Before meetings, I would say, you know, I'm going to ask you to speak up. And I'm telling you this now because I don't want you to feel that I'm calling you out in a meeting. I just want to ensure that I'm creating space for you to speak in the meeting because I think you have some really important insights to offer. And so in the meeting, after I would tell her this and in the meeting, I would always and she would expect for me to call her so that she could speak and contribute because she it was hard because she was quieter. She was shyer. If I started creating the space for her, eventually she would claim the space. And so I felt my job as a leader was to do that. And I, I think more and more leaders have to recognize that a big part of leadership is lifting other people and understanding what it takes to ensure that they can succeed. Exactly. And that I don't believe in large corporations, the focus has been, or there's been any sort of measure and performance reviews about how did you raise your team? How did you lift them and bring them? Indicate to me, show me concrete examples where you actually created equity within your team. You fostered diversity and inclusion within your team. Their performance, I think, should be tied to how well their team does. And I don't see that. I completely agree. And I think that kind of ties back on how we get leaders to care more about it, right? When you're, you know, when they're being assessed on specific areas like that, it's going to kind of change the culture and how leaders treat their teams and how they bring them up, kind of what strategies they use to do so. And I think with that, it's, it's I think what often gets thought about, it's, you know, we're trying to, it's not about taking the seats away from someone, it's creating that equitable playing field so that the right person or the best person is in that seat. And for an organization to have the best person in that seat means, you know, you're going to do better you're going to grow, right? And again, it's that mindset shift of that's what leaders need to be doing for their business and organizations to really, really grow and flourish. Tell me more, Miranda, about some of the work you're doing on data, because one of the things I've seen in corporations is they have tons of data. They're not always collecting the right data, or they don't know how to use the data to really make change and make decisions. And I believe that you're doing some really interesting work around diversity, inclusion, and data. Yes, yes. And exactly, like you said, there's so much data available, but when we're, you know, when we're looking at organizations to develop inclusion and diversity strategies, rarely do they actually look at employee data to kind of understand trends and understand what's going on. 
what's really interesting about this space, and it kind of ties back to, you know, a bit about what we were saying earlier about kind of having that, you know, one person that speaks for everyone. Instead of doing that, right, when you're able to now, and I think we're just in such a unique place in, in history and society where we have so many tools, so much technology available to us, where we can use things like artificial intelligence to understand, for example, why are certain people being promoted versus other people? What are some of the things that those people did or were judged on that got them there? Or using things like natural language processing to see if there was bias in how people were relating performance reviews. There's just so many opportunities here to really understand the problem at scale and be much more directed in understanding kind of the unique needs of employees as opposed to just developing these blanket you know, solutions. I think of it as, you know, if you're an organization and you're marketing a company, let's take, a, you know, a bank, they have different marketing plans for each of their customers. It's not a one size fits all. So why are we still doing a one size fits all for our employee base? And before it would be argued, we don't have the data, we don't have that understanding, but now we do have the data. And we can do that deep dive where we're understanding our employees needs at scale and developing specific strategies and solutions to help support them. So that's, yeah, a lot of the work that I do. It's helping kind of organizations look at their inclusion and diversity data strategy and understanding how they can do that and start to really, really develop strategies that will work for their employees. Marina, can you tell me or give us some examples of what companies are doing and doing really well to move the dial around diversity and inclusion? Yeah, for sure. And from a kind of from a data perspective, I was working with the university and what they were trying to understand is why women weren't going into STEM programs and kind of what are some of the barriers that these women were facing when going into, and when I say STEM, I mean science, technology, engineering, and math. And what they did is they kind of used data to help understand that problem. So they looked at almost 10 years trending data, and they were able to go back and understand kind of specific, almost think of it as a marketing segmentation piece, specific segments of students and what those unique needs were by using artificial intelligence. So they used a a model called clustering to be able to identify specific needs of these segments. And then from there, they were able to develop specific strategies to support these segments. So what they uncovered was some students needed extra, you know, from example, job support, they weren't actually being paid at an equal level for certain jobs. Some women were dropping out of specific programs because of, you know, XYZ reasons. With that, they were able to now actually drill down into some of the solutions. And what was interesting is that they were able to then disprove a lot of the solutions that they had implemented. So You know, there was always the thought that if you had more women in a classroom, women would do better, which was not true. It has no causation. So it was very interesting because they were able to kind of test their hypotheses with this kind of method of using data and then now meet the unique needs of much more students as opposed to just doing, you know, one focus group where they ask 10 students what they think. In our previous conversation, you made this really interesting point because we're a country of immigrants and we uh, really think of immigration as our greatest strength. And one of the comments you had, which I thought was so insightful, was that, you know, in a consulting firm where it's about, you know, business that you're bringing in, if you've come from another country, your networks are not maybe as full as someone who's born and raised in Canada, right? And gone to the schools in Canada. Perhaps you can just talk about that example more. I I don't want to speak for you on that example, but I just 
just I thought it was an excellent point, particularly in a country that sees immigration as a greater strength. We're actually not enabling new Canadians to succeed. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what's interesting and it kind of kind of ties back into creating that level playing field is when you think about most organizations, or if you take consulting as the example here, to kind of move up within the firm, you need to sell, right? Uh, You need to have a really good network, you obviously need to be a good leader and, and all of those pieces. But a lot of it comes down to, you know, what you're hitting from a sales target perspective. And if you're taking someone, you know, who's doing really well and performing really well within the organization, but they're new to the country, they didn't go to that Ivy League school. They don't have a network. They aren't able to pick out and find CEOs in different organizations. Their ability to progress is going to be hindered on just that, on that just that barrier as an example. So uh, from an organizational perspective, and that's just one example, we have all of these institutional systemic barriers that are impacting progression of people. And we need to understand those barriers if we truly want to create that that level playing field. And organizations need to do more to, to kind of understand that from using data, from you know understanding the people that they're trying to bring up. And it's kind of funny because we see this, well, not funny, but we see this happen where you have you know diversity at lower levels. And then as they move up, right, that pipeline gets narrower and narrower and you're not seeing people kind of move up to those leadership positions. But why is that happening? It's because of these institutional barriers. And we need to address those if we really want to create that representation at that executive board level. And, you know, for a country, often what's referred to in Canada, we call it, if we're talking about an academic term, it's called a democratic racism, which is where you have kind of two very conflicting views. As a country, for example, we pride ourselves in multiculturalism. It's something that, you know, most people will talk to and say, you know, I'm Canadian or I'm proud of that. But then we have these almost racist institutional policies that limit people. So we're telling people to come to our country. Yet when they're trying to get a job, if they don't have Canadian experience, they can't. Or, you know, it's situations like that where they're trying to move up and they can't hit their sales targets. So that's not going to happen for them. Or, you know, we, you know, kind of pride ourselves on multiculturalism, but we don't offer religious holidays as an actual federal holiday for a lot of groups where they can take time off. So it's it's all of these kind of barriers that these people are experiencing that together it, it's huge. And it's a reason why they're not progressing. So like it kind of ties back unconscious train unconscious bias training is great. Sure, you need to do that, but it needs to be coupled with all of these other areas where you're reviewing your policies as an organization and you're understanding how that policy, how someone's being evaluated is is different by different groups of people and how do you kind of level that playing field for them. We look at the US, we look at the UK, and we try to take what they've done and apply it to Canada. But when we think about racism, racism is an ideology. It's based on a set of values, beliefs, and assumptions, right? It's based on kind of how your country was governed and founded as a nation. And that's how we develop different sets of ideologies. So Canadian ideology is very different than U.S. ideology. It's very different than the U.K.'s ideology. So, you know, what's working for the U.S. isn't necessarily going to work for Canada. 
similarly with the UK. So we have kind of a unique problem here that needs to be addressed of understanding what the Canadian problem is, as opposed to, you know, being like, oh, well, we're not as bad as the US. Well, they have a completely different problem than we have here. And I think we almost get away with it as a nation. I agree. We're always compared to America, which is, I mean, obviously, they have a lot of issues. And so do we, but we can't just kind of compare it to what's going on in the US. And just because we're a little bit better, it's okay. And the thing is, I mean, I almost feel like we're actually not better because we actually talk about the greatness of immigration, yet then we make it so difficult for diversity to thrive and to create inclusive corporations because our corporations lack diversity in such significant ways and are so not inclusive. And so I feel that we're not better. We have a different set of problems and we're struggling to find solutions for them. Part of that struggle is resulting in a lot of women of color leaving corporations to do something else. And when you look at this Stats. I mean, I think the data itself is, is problematic, but the data that's available shows that women of color are highly ambitious. They're very qualified in terms of their credentials, yet they are underemployed or overemployed in low wage jobs. I mean, this is a significant issue, I think, in Canada. And we've just sort of pushed it away. Well, let's just focus on gender diversity and it'll all sort of work itself out. And we can be proud that we now have 40% women on boards, but you have actually like maybe one, if that racialized person on the board, which is in Canada, I think unacceptable. And I think now there's much more to focus on it. I think people are starting to realize it, which is amazing with initiatives like yours. But I agree, right? It's these kind of, you know, initiatives that need to shine light on some of the Canadian problems and, you know, lobbying a bit more, whether it's organizations and governments to really, you know, do their part in making a difference because it's just what they're doing today is enough. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And again, I'm just so amazed by everything that you're doing and happy to be a part of it. The world is changing quicker than ever before. We don't know for certainty what will happen over the next few months or the next few years, but we will continue to adapt and share stories of strength so that we come out on the other side as a more inclusive, kinder, and understanding society. Thank you for listening. I'm Shilpa. And you've been listening to Her Climb. Did you enjoy the show? Then subscribe to Her Climb Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Her Climb Podcasts come out every week in our very first season. Thank you.